Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Warning. This podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Hey, Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I'm joined by my ghoul friend, Jessica. Hello. Hello, hello. And today we are starting another two-part series here on the show for the month of February. This month, we are doing a deep dive on the co-ed killer, Ed Kemper. And he is uh, quite the guy, so we've got lots to cover here. I will give a quick, serious content topic warning. If you're not familiar with him or maybe a little fuzzy on this topic, there is a lot of sexual graphic violence in this case. So if that is something that triggers you, please feel free to skip at least this part one. In Jessica's part two, there will be much less of that. But in my part, we do go into the details of his crimes and we always want to make sure you guys are in a good place. So there is that for now. But if you are new here, we want to say hello and welcome. You can find us on all the social medias. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Our handle is at Three Spooked Girls. And we have a fantastic Facebook group that you can come hang out with us in as well. If you want that kind of daily interaction with us. That's kind of the best place. Everything is in the link tree as well below for you in the show notes. We'd love to have you. We talk about, of course, everything true crime and paranormal, but we've also opened up the group in terms of just kind of making it a bit more of a little happy home internet hangout place for our spooksters. You guys can post anything really in there as long as it is positive and things like that. We don't allow drama and not fun stuff. So you got puppies, you got happy things going on in life, you got exciting things going on. We very much so welcome that. And we always welcome mug posts because Jessica and I are mug hoarders. So those are always welcome. (laughs) Yes, my addiction to mug hoarding is grows all the time. We both have uh, probably way more than the average person ever will in their lifetime, but it's okay. It's okay. Our husbands deal with it. (laughs) And the thing is, is we do not plan to stop collecting mugs. Oh, no, no, never. It's literally every time we go anywhere, whether it's together, separate, whatever, we each always come home with a new mug. And sometimes we get each other mugs. Like today, I'm drinking coffee out of a mug Jessica got me when she went on one of her Disney trips. This is true. 
I'm a mug buyer. Like that's my like every one of my friends know like the go to gift they're possibly getting from me is a mug. And it was pointed out to me. So I try really hard not to. <laughs> uh, yeah. So fun fact for you guys. There you go. But if you would also like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash three spooked girls or that's in that link tree below. Anything we get as far as revenue, we put back in the show. We put it towards future giveaways. We put it towards merch. We give all kinds of goodies as far as stickers, pins and stuff like that. So that's where all of that goes. And then we also donate 10% of our earnings each month to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. It is one of our favorite nonprofits that's near and dear to our heart because as you guys know, we try to do everything we can to help on our little platform with those kinds of cases. So yeah, if you guys want to check that out, you absolutely can. There's all kinds of cool bonus episodes and everything. We just dropped our Dementors episode and uh, we sidebarred with plenty of fun memories of Jessica and I (laughs) (laughs) as friends too, including Harry Potter. So it was a little different, a lot more personal. So if you guys want to check that out, feel free to go over there if you would like. But enough about the business stuff. Jessica, what did you and the Miss Bell Witch pick for our drink this week? So because we're talking Ed Kemper, we had to go with a very specific drink. We're going with the Lady Killer because anything else seems a little bit inappropriate. This is true. So if you want to find that recipe, head over to our socials tomorrow and it will be there. It's brought to us by the very fun app of Pinterest because let's face it, I probably wouldn't make good cocktails on my own. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, whatever. It's either going to come from that or like a recipe book. So, you know. It's true. I have a very active Pinterest and an (laughs) extremely overactive (laughs) collection of cookbooks. Poor Thomas. Like he, I have a mug hoarding situation going on in my house. I love cookbooks. I love books. Yeah. (laughs) It's all good. It's all good. But with that, we're going to take a quick promo break and we'll be back in just a second. Boston Harbor Horror is about a Coast Guard member who discovers an ancient artifact during a rescue on one of the many islands located deep in Boston Harbor. His subsequent research into that artifact leads him down a dark path that will test his sanity, his relationships, the very reality in which he resides. Boston Harbor Horror is an Asylum 94 production. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Boston HBR Horror and Asylum 94 PROD. Like us on Facebook at Boston Harbor Horror and Asylum 94. Follow us on Instagram at Boston Harbor Horror and Asylum 94. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Up All Night, an Are You Afraid of the Dark podcast. We're your hosts. My name's Cortland. And I'm Brandon. And in our podcast, we take apart each episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark, scene by scene, and discuss it in detail. This show is prime early 90s Canadian acting at its best. Or, in some cases, worst. We're here to laugh our way through seven seasons and 91 episodes. So whether you're a fan of the show... Dink. That's sardo. No, mister. Accent on the dough. Hi, Andy. Won't you come play with me? Hey, we're just having a goof. Or experiencing it for the first time. We know there's nothing better than staying up all night with a scary story. 
Okay, well, welcome back, guys. Like I said, we are going to be doing this topic into two parts. Since last time we didn't explain ourselves on how we were breaking things up, I thought it would be courteous to explain. So real quick before we dive in. So part one is going to be me. Part two will be Jessica, as I kind of hinted at a few minutes ago. I am going to dive into Ed's past, the murders, and all of that stuff. And then I will kind of end us on when he turns himself in. And then Jessica will pick us up with the arrest the trials, all that shenanigans. And then she's got a lot of cool facts as far as his life once he's in prison. Of course, Mindhunter stuff. And yeah, all kinds of extra information for us. That'll be coming after our paranormal episode next week. So it'll be like Peterson where it has that spooky episode in between. So you guys will just have to hang tight for a little bit, but it will be coming for you. So Edmund Emil Kemper III, or better known by his family as Guy, was born on December 18th of 1948. His parents were Clarnell and Edmund Kemper II, and he was born in Burbank, California. He was 13 pounds at birth, which is, fun fact, over two of my kid when she was born. It's a big-ass baby. Yeah, I was going to say, that's probably two of most normal-sized babies because my daughter wasn't underweight or anything. <laughs> Let's put this like in perspective. I have a twin niece and nephew, and most twins are born slightly smaller, mm -hmm. but they were born at average size weights. So my nephew was eight pounds, 12 ounces, and my niece was seven pounds, two ounces. Yeah. So like the combined of them is just a little over Ed Kemper. Right? It's it's insane. And he's always a huge dude. And I mentioned him being a giant baby, basically coming out a toddler, uh, because his immense size is something that is always noted and something that's just like really one of the big like characteristics. I think even if you don't know about Ed Kemper, it's something like it's a fun fact, you know, basically, because he's a huge, huge dude. He was also the middle child. He had two sisters, Alan and Susan. Clarnell and Edmund II had a strained marriage, to say the least. They fought a lot and didn't get along at all. It's said that Clarnell was always berating and belittling him. And when Ed was nine years old, the two separated and officially became divorced a few years later. And around the time of their separation, Clarnell moved herself and the three kids to Helena, Montana. And then at this point, this is when the darkness that Ed had inside of him and the abuse he would go on to deal with during his mother's lifetime would really begin to emerge. So this wrath of abuse that Clarnell had with her ex-husband now would move on to Ed. She would constantly yell at him and constantly belittle him. And things would go so far that when he was about 10, he actually was moved into a separate part of the home. So instead of being on the regular level with the rest of the family, he was moved into the basement and locked down there at bedtime with no nightlight, nothing extra like that, with rats running around just not an environment for a child or probably any person. Yeah, it, it doesn't sound like he was well cared for. No, mm -mm. as we'll go to see. So Ed describes the light of the furnace as being able to come through when he was down there, though. He said it reminded him of the flames of hell. So that's fun. 
Ed had also said that her reasoning for locking him down there was that she didn't want him to hurt or rape his little sister. I just, like, at that point, I wonder, had he been exhibiting any kind of, you know, action that would make her believe this? Or was she just, like, a deranged parent who thought everything was sexualized? Right. I know, because at 10, that's not anything near appropriate to say to a child. Like, at all. Right. Unless he's exhibiting some sort of like aggressive sexual behavior at this point in time, it wouldn't make any sense except for if this mother is like kind of has a sick and twisted mind thinking that any kind of like physical connection is a sexual connection. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Most of the info that we do learn about his mother does come from Ed himself. And, you know, he's a master manipulator and a murderer. But it does seem that the majority do agree that she was an abusive person. And, you know, to be fair, nobody should suffer any kind of abuse, especially a child. And, you know, with that said, that's not me sympathizing or being a fangirl of Ed or anything because, you know, Ed's still Ed. But it's just one of those points where it's like it's still sad to read because, you know. Right. Because it seems like it started at an early age. Right. And it's like one of those things where you think about like, I choose to believe that people are created, not made, like they're not born evil. Mm-hmm. I agree. I don't really like that expression like, oh, they were born evil because that implies that genetics can be evil. Right. And I might be wrong. There might be studies that come out later. Yeah. I just think that like when you look at serial killers, there's always that like triggering factor. Mm hmm. I think they're very well conditioned to hate and feel the need to lash out. Yeah, and I think he fits that very well, for sure. Along with this, there's definitely warning signs that Ed should have had some intervention as a child because, as you'll see, there's things he does that's not just a kids will be kids or boys will be boys type of thing. One of the first concerning things is Ed had a couple of favorite games that he liked to play with his siblings when he was growing up. These games were called Gas Chamber and Electric Chair, and they are exactly what they sound like. So typically it was him that would be the one to die. Uh, Some sources I read said that the kids would take turns, but majority of them said he wanted to be the one to be executed, quote, quote. It's weird because it's like, who wants to be the victim? Right. Just doesn't make sense. Escalating from here, Ed would take his older sister's dolls and cut off the heads and limbs of them. And now I know some of you are probably like, wait, my brother did this or I did this. And just because... I cut off limbs or cut the heads off dolls doesn't mean I'm a serial killer or I would hurt anybody. And okay, fair. And then also we have Sid from Toy Story. He could have turned into a serial killer. We know. (laughs) I get that. But knowing what we know about Ed, it's definitely a stepping stone for him. Well, I think every child goes through a destructive phase. I Mm -hmm. think when, I mean, I had an older brother, so I understand like the whole like ripping the head off the Barbie thing. Like, and I mean, and sometimes you accidentally do something and then you're like, oh, it's more mechanistic versus like, you're not looking at it as a person where I think Ed was looking at it like ripping the arms and legs and head off of little people. Right. Versus, oh, if I stretch this Barbie's leg this long, I can see the rubber band. Oh, shit. The rubber band snapped. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, like, I guess at this point, if you think about it, especially because she was, I would venture to guess, not a very present mother. You could just brush that off as, oh, a boys will be boys. He's just doing whatever kind of thing. But as we move along now, I'm sorry, you can't ignore it at all. You just can't. So as we know, 
animal cruelty and killing animals, more specifically, is a huge red flag. Well, this is where Ed moved to next. At 10, he buried one of their cats alive. After it was dead, he unburied it, decapitated it, and then placed its head on a stake. Yeah, that's a huge sign. <laughs> like, there's something wrong here. That's a huge, like, scary thing. And then a few years later, when he was 13, he would kill another family cat simply because it favored his sister more than him. And he would butcher this one as well, and he ended up keeping parts of it in his closet. I'm assuming because he lived in the basement, it would take a bit for his mom to find it. But when she did, I I don't know, I guess she was just kind of like, okay, throwing this away, whatever. Like, I, I mean, I don't know, but I'm just like, she just tossed it and that was that. Nothing happened. The following year, when Ed was 14, he decided he wanted to run away. So he did. He had said in later interviews that he had a close relationship with his father prior to their divorce. So he wanted to go back and reconcile with him and I'm sure also escape his mother. He would go to his father's home in Van Nuys, California. But when he arrived, it wasn't exactly what he pictured. He'd come to learn that his father had remarried and he now also had a stepson. So he had moved on. He had this whole new family, etc. Ed did end up staying here for about a month or so, but things were really rocky and just toxic. It was said that he did not get along with his stepmother. Not surprising because his views on women with authority are not good. So from here... Ed II tried to send him back to Montana, but Clarnell had said that she actually enjoyed the time while Ed was away, so she really wasn't thrilled to have him back. So from here, Ed would end up being sent to live with his paternal grandparents, which is Ed Sr. and Maud in North Fork, California. And then also for timeline's sake to kind of keep things straight, at this point when he goes to live with them, he is 15 years old and it is now 1964. Now, North Fork is a super tiny town. Even today, it's still a teeny, teeny town. Just for my curiosity, I took a look at what the population was as of like the 2019 census. And they haven't even crossed to 3,000 people. So I'm sure in the 60s, it was probably even less. That's crazy. Yeah. Ed describes it as, you know, just a remote kind of farming area. And then for reference for any Californians, if you want a little geography, it's about an hour north of Fresno. God, I'm so gravelly today. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I mean, depending on where you're coming from Fresno, and Fresno is off the 99, and I'm just saying this because I had to drive to Fresno last year. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with Fresno. It's just that <laughs> driving the 99 to Fresno is like the worst decision you could ever make. <laughs> it's a two-lane highway, and it's like a lot of agricultural trucks. So sometimes you go slower. I mean, it's like, it's, I should say it's a four-lane highway because there's two on each side. But still, I looked at a map, and it told me like, oh, you could get from Stockton to Fresno in two hours. And it took me three and a half. Yeah, that's the thing. And I'm sure like with any area, you know, like Google Maps will say one thing. And then when you're actually driving it, it's sometimes a different story, either more or less. So yeah, it lied to me. If Google Maps is lying to me and it's more than an hour, don't at me, please. <laughs> Geographically, it's an hour north, whether it takes you that far to drive it, it could be more. <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. While Ed lived with his grandparents, his grandpa had bought him a firearm and taught him how to shoot. And Ed liked to shoot birds. And Maud, his grandma, 
was not a huge fan of this. So this is kind of foreshadowing here and for just a minute. Ed also, when he talked about his grandparents, he described his grandpa as senile and his grandma as constantly emasculating him and his grandfather. So arguably, she had the same type of personality as his mother, at least according to Ed. Then one day on August 27th of 1964, Ed Sr. had went out to the grocery store. While he was out, Ed and Maude were home alone, and they ended up getting into an argument over Ed shooting the birds. Well, that argument led into her saying she was going to take away his firearm. And apparently this is just something that sent Ed over the edge and he decided enough was enough. He went and grabbed his rifle, shot her in the back of the head, and then also shot her twice in the back, which of course killed her. Along with this, some sources do say that she was stabbed post-mortem as well. This is one of those kind of gray areas, so I included it, but it's not confirmed everywhere. Then shortly after this, Ed Sr. pulls into the driveway to return home. And Ed decides then that he's going to kill his grandpa too. Ed Sr. was shot and died in his driveway. Later, Ed said that the reason he murdered his grandpa was because he didn't want him to see what he had done and then that his wife was dead because if he would have, he would have had a heart attack and died. I mean, there's like a chance that he might not have. So, I mean. Right? Okay, whatever. Yeah, it's just like psychopath plus being a 15-year-old boy. Logic. It's true. It's very true. Right? So after uh, Ed had killed both of them, he calls his mom and tells her what he's done. She basically replies how you think she would and says how stupid he is and basically kind of like a what the fuck kind of thing and tells him he needs to call the cops. After they get off the phone, pretty sure she had hung up on him at that point. Ed calls the authorities, and when they get there, he's found sitting outside on the porch and is just super cooperative when they get there. Another theme you will see is that authorities always say that he came off as helpful Ed or a friendly nuisance, as he puts it. Something crazy, though, going back to like his size and stuff, I believe at this point he was about 6'4", so they thought he was a grown man until they went up and started talking to him. They couldn't believe how young he actually was because huge. You can't see me in my hands, but yeah. I mean, I get it. I get it too. I super get it. Like, I'm almost 5'6", and I'm considered the shrimpy one in my family. Yeah. Like, I'm literally the short child. (laughs) (laughs) All of my siblings, well, they're both brothers, but yeah, like, my older brother is 6'5", and my younger brother is 6'3". Yeah. And then there's me. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I've been around Bo, because I'm under 5'4". I'm, like, in between. But anyway, even just being next to him, I feel so tiny. I can't (laughs) imagine being next to somebody who's 6'9". Right? Oh, my God. Mm, That's so tall. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But once in court for the murders of his grandparents, it was decided that Ed would not go to prison, that instead he would go to Ascadero State Hospital to receive treatment. The judge deemed him as a salvageable human being and that he was simply mentally ill, and the court psychiatrist at this time diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic, which later, spoiler, we learn is not the case for Ed. Anyway, he's sent over there for rehabilitation, and along with this, with all of his other tests, during his intake and stuff, they do an IQ test, and they learn that his score is a 145, which means he's in genius territory, which is kind of shocking because his whole life he had been told how stupid he was and everything like that. So he even says himself that he was really surprised. But 
In regards to his IQ, it was said by his half-brother, David Weber, that, quote, Susan once told me that Guy's IQ is far higher than the reported 146, more like 180 plus. He faked his IQ test so he would always come out showing that he had an IQ in the upper 140s. He's a demented super genius of a sociopath. He is incapable of caring regardless of what he says or shows. He makes O.J. Simpson look like a rank amateur at best, end quote. I just like sit there and I like the choice he used, like O.J. Simpson, like, so I would have picked a different quote unquote murderer. Oh, I would have too. But I'm saying about the <laughs> aspect on how Ed can manipulate. I mean, yes, his size, I'm sure, intimidate a lot of people, but how he can mentally manipulate people. I would have picked like Ted Bundy or Dahmer or anyone else. <laughs> Sorry, that just stuck. No, 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 no. I, I get what you're saying. Uh, like the OJ thing, I'm like, whatever. I'm thinking like maybe this quote's from the 90s or something. I don't know. Oh, like right at, o- like if it was around OJ, that would make sense. I withdraw my complaint. Yeah, no, no, you're fine. I'm just saying that even his family knows what a trickster to make it as light because that's like fucking light as shit. This fucking dude is. It's insane. Because, you know, Bundy could quote unquote please the ladies, but he couldn't not please the cops, but like, you know, charm the cops. And uh, well, Ed has a different story. So I'll continue. <laughs> I mean, let's not go down that road because I will compare Ted Bundy and be like, yeah, I think he was because like people trusted him. Like the cop let him be in that room by himself because they're like, oh, good old Ted. You know, <laughs> oh, I'm talking about the traffic stops. Oh, yeah, that's just let's be real here. Ted Bundy just he's not good out in the wild <laughs> with cops. Anyways, back to Ed Kemper. Oh, yeah, yeah. OK, well, I asked Adaro, he would be reevaluated on site by the psychiatrist there, and they decided they disagreed with Ed's diagnosis from the court psychiatrist. They decided that he had a personality trait disturbance or some sort of passive-aggressive type of thing going on. <laughs> Which, okay, we know, and you guys probably know, plenty of passive-aggressive people, but um, are they serial killers? No. So... I don't know what the fuck was going on there, but okay, we'll just leave that alone. But as I mentioned, you know, just a sec ago and Jessica mentioned too, he was super smart. He's obviously even super smart as a child. He knew how to gain people's trust. He knew how to tell them the things that he wanted. He even ended up appearing as a, quote, model patient and ended up working in the office alongside with them and administering tests out to other patients. Which, to be fair, a lot of stuff we know now is thanks to Ed. So they didn't know. And they just thought he was this harmless giant boy. So I'm not going to hate on them too much, I guess. No, exactly. Like, I think Ed is the perfect example of the the time he came out, the innocence of us, because Ed Kemper hadn't ruined it for the world yet. Oh, yeah. And of course, I'm sure you can guess, other patients who were here as well were deemed criminally insane and were very dangerous, hence why he was there, because after doing two murders. Not shocking to find out, Ed was able to study and memorize the tests that he was helping hand out, so he knew what answers the doctors wanted to see and hear. So when it came time for his evaluations or to go to therapy or group work, things like that, he knew exactly what to tell them to give the impression that he was getting better and becoming rehabilitated and all of that. So that, obviously, is a big mishap or a blip or just kind of like a fatal flaw that's, again, not really – it's one of those things that it's, like, tough to put full blame on them because they thought they were doing the right thing, I guess, you know? 
Yeah, I don't think the American like psychiatric community understood sociopathic behavior at that point in time because like now we kind of get it. Mm-hmm. We kind of understand. I mean, it it's still something that I think we as a society struggle with. But like I'm thinking at that point in time, sociopathic tendencies were they weren't understood. And I mean, this is still the time where they told women they could smoke while they were pregnant and drink while they were pregnant. So, you know. Right. The word serial killer didn't even exist yet. Not yet. Not yet. One thing that they did agree on, though, is that the cause of his rage and the murders he did commit came from one root cause, his mom. But sadly, with that said, though, he was released on parole on his 21st birthday and put into the care of none other than his mother, This is something that makes sense to nobody. I don't know why they did this. Professionals don't know why they did this. John Douglas doesn't know why they did this. But here we are. It's just like, basically, they were like, you know, Ed Kemper, he's a bad guy, but he's just triggered by one person and makes him a bad guy. That's his mom. So now that he's done and we think he's good, we're going to give him back to the one person who triggers him. Right. And I mean, I got I don't know if like maybe their defense is, oh, he's better so he can't be triggered, which is just bullshit. But I would assume halfway houses of some kind would have it maybe existed. I don't know. Right. They would have been better to have done that. I don't know. Because he was an adult. Like, it wasn't yeah. like he was still a juvenile. Like, he was 21. Right, yeah. He wasn't a minor. Granted, he obviously didn't have those social skills, but age-wise and by the law, he's an adult. So, I don't know. Right. And then again, we look at it like what we have today, which is like we have lots of really good halfway houses that typically have some sort of like psychological professional on site or connected with. This was probably a much different time and it may have just been they thought, oh, if we put him there, he's just going to go back to crime or something. Yeah. So like I just kind of hinted at, because Ed spent the bulk of his adolescence at Escadero, he was awkward. He didn't know how to socialize or interact with people his own age. A lot of the people he was in the hospital with were criminals. So, you know, not the normal teen experience, to say the least. Along with that, though, uh, it didn't take him long and his mom to get back into their old routine of her verbally abusing him and belittling him and, you know, just saying things like he'll never find a girlfriend, he'll never find anyone to even take out on a date, that he was stupid, things like that. But as a part of his parole, Ed had to go to continue his education. So he enrolled at a local community college because he had hopes of becoming a police officer. Now, oddly enough, and this also shows, you know, the time period, in my opinion, you'd think he'd be rejected because, you know, he committed two murders. But no, he actually was rejected because of his size. He was too tall and too big because at this point he was now full grown and 6'9". But he did want to stay friendly with the police officers on Santa Cruz PD, and he would also frequent the bar that they would go to called the Jury Room. This was definitely a cop bar, so everyone local knew this is where they'd go hang out, that kind of thing. And it was right across the street from the local courthouse. So he'd just go there and just, you know, talk with them, ask questions, and be that, you know, friendly nuisance that I referred to earlier, as he puts it. And they pretty much just saw him as harmless. You know, he'd be like, eh, he's kind of annoying, but he ain't going to hurt nobody. It's Big Ed, as they called him. Ed ended up working a string of different kind of random jobs, but eventually he did land a position at the State of California Highway Department, which is now known as the California Department of Transportation or Caltrans. After saving up enough money, Ed moved out of his mother's house and moved in with a friend into an apartment. Around the same time, he 
had purchased a motorcycle and that was how he was getting, you know, getting around to and from work and stuff like that. He was actually in an accident and was hit by a car and it injured his arm pretty badly. They had went to court and had a civil suit and he ended up getting a $15,000 settlement and roughly in today's money, that's about $90,000. That's a lot. That's a lot of fucking money for a young person. (laughs) for anybody, actually, but like especially somebody so young, you know? Yes. And with his settlement money, one of the things he ended up buying was his infamous 1969 Ford Galaxy. And then also on his shopping list, he began to put together his murder kit. And of course, this would have things in there such as knives, blankets, plastic bags, handcuffs, stuff like that. And now this is going to be the time that we are shifting gears and getting into the co-ed murders. At this time, his mother worked at the UC Santa Cruz campus and in the 60s is actually pretty new. The campus had originally opened in 1965, so really new. The community was really close from what other members at the faculty had said. And of course, Clarnell was a part of that community. So of course because that's got this weird relationship with his mom. He'd been around the campus, and uh, his mom always gave him shit about it, saying things like, you'll never get a girl like these, and, you know, shit like that, and just demeaning as usual. Another thing to keep in mind is during the 60s and 70s, hitchhiking culture was such a normal thing. The easiest way to compare it, especially if you're, I would say, probably any younger than me, you probably are like, what the fuck? Compare it to like getting an Uber, how that's just a normal part of our life. That's how hitchhiking was. Like it was just such a normal thing. It wasn't a big deal to just get a random ride like that. Because Ed Kemper hadn't ruined it yet. <laughs> yes, this is true. <laughs> yeah, because people were like, oh, okay, everyone's overall good. And if they're picking me up for a ride, they're helping me out, not going to murder me. So, you know, but this is when Ed would start in on his game. He began by just giving women rides, nothing more. He stuck around the UC campus because, of course, not many students had cars, and honestly, he knew they would be easy targets. So he said, you know, students versus, quote, people of the street, so like prostitutes, things like that. Students would be more innocent, and they would be kind of more dumb, and they wouldn't have the street smarts to pick up if something was off. He would use these innocent rides, as he put it, as practice, basically to see how far he could get each time, going a little further, a little further. It was something he described as a daring kind of thing. He also had lots of tricks that he figured out that would make them feel more comfortable. One of his favorite ones was that to look down at his watch. He said essentially it made them feel just more at ease, that it gave the message that he had somewhere to be, that, you know, he would it'd just be, I'm going to take you, drop you off, and I'm going to go on to my appointment, class, whatever that, like, you know, whatever they assumed he had to do. Now, there's something common that comes up before each kill. There's always seems to be a full-on blowout with his mom. You'll hear that a few times. So yeah. And again, like I said, we're going to kind of get into this more graphic stuff. Yes, his grandparents' murders are, of course, tragic and sad, but these murders are a whole new level. And we just want to throw that extra trigger warning in for you guys. So on May 7th, 1972, Ed set out on a drive, and he would eventually pick up his first two victims, Marianne, who was 18, and Anita, who was also 18. These girls were hitchhiking up to Stanford. The three had been driving for about an hour, and then Ed had reached the destination he wanted to be at, which, no surprise, is not Stanford. 
They ended up in a secluded wooded area near Alameda, and he had become familiar with this thanks to working at Caltrans, which the highway department, but it's Caltrans now. He managed to get the girls there without realizing that he had changed directions from where they wanted to go. Once there, he handcuffed Mary Ann in the back seat and locked Anita in the trunk. Then he had stabbed and strangled Mary Ann to death. Later, Ed confessed that while handcuffing Mary Ann, he brushed the back of his hand against one of her breasts and it embarrassed him. He said that he had told her, whoops, I'm sorry, or something like that after touching her breast, despite that he was about to murder her. After he had done this, he said he was in shock, but he knew he had to take care of Anita as well because even though she was in the trunk, she heard everything. She knew there was a struggle. She knew shit had just went down. He had also said that, quote, it's not like in the movies in regards to the murder. It's tough. Boo hoo, Ed. Boo fucking who. He had said that he chose Anita to be the second victim because She was basically this gullible, dumb girl, according to him. So he had tricked her to get out of the car with him and look at something in the trunk, and that's when he shoved her in there. So he decided to trick her again. And when he let her out, you know, of course, she was like, what's going on? You know, that kind of thing. Like, what the fuck? And he had told her that Marianne had smarted off to him, and he think he broke her nose So she better come out and check on her. And also something to know at this point, I'm assuming why he went with broke her nose is because he was also covered in her blood. So he couldn't just be like, I smacked her or I punched her or something like that. It makes sense because if she got a bloody nose, it'd be everywhere. Mm -hmm. And he said he tried to stab Anita as soon as she got out of the trunk, but apparently it didn't even go through her clothes at first. Originally, when I was reading about that, I'm like, did the blade bend? But the type of knife, I think it was a smaller blade. I am i can't quite remember. But basically, it just didn't even like poke through her clothes. Of course, that's when she started freaking out and everything. But sadly, he would eventually succeed in murdering her and he slashed her throat. At this point, the girls were both dead and he put them in the trunk and then started his drive home. On his way home with the bodies, he was actually pulled over for a broken taillight. It's speculated that Anita had possibly been trying to find a way to get out of the trunk while she was locked in there and had broken it. And then with the traffic stop, Ed being Ed, he put on his helpful charm. He hopped out of the car and chatted with the policeman and asked if he wanted him, you know, the cop to check it out to be like, oh, do you want to see like maybe why it's broken or what's wrong with it? That kind of thing. And... The cop said, no, that's fine, and let him off with a warning to fix it and let Ed be on his way. I mean, if you're a police officer, even though you have a gun, like, this behemoth of a man just popped out of a car, you're probably like, oh, shit. (laughs) True. I think the mixture of that and then him just being so forthcoming, again, people were so trusting. He could have thought in his head, you know, oh, this dude's not hiding anything. So he let him go, and then Ed would head home. Ed's roommate was not at home, so he took the girls' bodies into his apartment. And from here, this is where he took photographs of them, had sex with their corpses, and also dismembered their bodies and removing their heads. He had put their body parts into plastic bags, which he later would abandon near Loma Prieta Mountain. But before disposing of their heads in a ravine, Ed engaged in essentially forcible oral sex with their heads. 
in August of that year, Mary's skull would be found on the mountain. And then at this point, they weren't able to find the rest of Mary's remains or trace any of Anita during their search. After the first set of killings, the fights between Ed and his mom would escalate, he said. Basically, he told authorities that, because you'll learn, Ed likes to fucking sing about everything. Things went from bad to worse. It'd be a few months until the next murder. We would be at September 14th of the same year. And Ed was on a drive over on University Avenue in Berkeley. This time he'd pick up 15-year-old Aiku Ku. And she had been hitchhiking because she missed the bus and had a dance class to go to. He did the same thing as before, you know, with tricking his victims, thinking that they're going to their destination, but not. And essentially, he did this by getting on the highway. And then at some point, he would switch directions, which, you know, if you're not quite familiar with the area, especially, or you're just in a car with someone who seems trustworthy, you may not be paying the fullest attention and thinking you're going where you're going. So I'm sure it probably wasn't that difficult. Plus, he would engage in conversations with them while driving to distract them. Right. Also, this particular area is tricky. There's like a lot of interchanges that you may think like, oh, you went because I've done it. I've been like, knowing where I'm going and driving and gotten on, mm-hmm. gotten in the wrong area. It's just kind of like almost like a lane change, basically. Mm. And also you have to think about it like this. He's a big ass dude. True. She's a 15 year old little girl. Like, mm-hmm. even if she was like, you're going the wrong way, like he's on the freeway. Right. And even if like that got pointed out, he I know with other people, he would just be like, trust me, this is a faster way. I know what I'm doing kind of situation. And of course, then they're like, "Okay, you know, totally. So he gets her to the secluded area like before. But this time, instead of having a knife, he has a 357 Magnum and he pulls it out. And this freaks her the hell out, of course, because you have this giant man with a gun. And he tries to calm her down, swearing he doesn't want to harm her. He tells her that he wants to kill himself, and he's just looking for someone to talk to. When they get off the highway, they drive down Bonnie Dune Road, which is near Santa Cruz, which is not where they're supposed to be. Her class was in San Francisco. But then he convinces her to get tied up and gagged. And he says, quote, I just want a quiet place where I can tie you up, and then we'll go to my place. Once parked, he shoves the gun under the front seat to be like, see, look, I put it away. And at this time, he also puts electrical tape over her mouth that he has her get out of the glove box and has her climb in the back seat. And then at this point, Ed gets out of the car to go around to the passenger side, but he locks himself out along with the gun. He ends up convincing her to let him back in. And unlock the doors. Now, you've kind of ingrained in my brain like, hello, he's this giant scary dude. Of course they're going to fucking listen. But it's just like, it just still kind of blows my fucking mind. Like, I feel like that would also be a thing to me to be like, no, don't let him, like, don't let him in. But, you know, not in that situation. So. Is she in the back seat or in the front seat? She was originally in the front She's seat. In the front. Yeah, she was originally in the front seat. And then after he tied her up before putting the tape on her mouth, he had her get into the back seat. Okay. Like flop over. You get what I'm saying? Right. No, 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 no. I totally understand. So like logistically here, like depending on if he she could reach under the seat and get the gun from the back seat. Because mm-hmm. I know that some cars 
like because it was a it was a coupe or as he would pronounce it coupe which is so fucking pretentious <laughs> so the seat had to fold down like if you were getting in it from the outside so there may be i know a lot of old cars had like a wall that the thing would like kind of rest on so they may not have been able to get the gun and think about it like right if you had you realize the door is locked and you, you like have a split second to think about it. You have to calculate how long would it take me to get over the front, get over the seat, get the gun before he could fucking punch through this window. Well, right. And she's already tied up at this point, so she can't even drive away or anything. Right. And and he's six, nine over 300 pounds. Like, I don't think it would take him too long to break that window. Yeah, there's just a lot of factors, but it's just like that. Ugh, like I know probably logistically not an opportunity for her to get away, but there's that small, small, you know what I'm saying? It's just like, fuck, you know? Right. I also think of it like this. It's like there's probably also that hope that if she just does everything he says, he's going to be telling the truth and he's just trying to talk to someone and he's going through something and that if I just do everything he says, he's going to let me go. It's going to be fine. I just have to do this versus... If I piss him the fuck off, that's it. Right. It seems like that was kind of her train of thought because at least how he describes it, when she's like getting tied up and getting the electrical tape and stuff, she's kind of joking with him a little bit. They kind of have like this back and forth, like kind of conversation. So it seems like that was kind of her hope, kind Mm -hmm. of her train of thought. So, yeah, no, I think that possibly could have been what was going on. We don't know, though, of course. And again... This is also Ed Kemper telling the story. This could have gone down a completely different way. Exactly. Exactly. That's the trouble with this is like, because all these women are dead, all we have to go off of is what he has to tell us. Mm -hmm. So once unlocked, he strangles her until she's unconscious, pulls her out of the car, rapes her outside, and then strangles her to death with a scarf. After killing her, he puts her in the trunk, and Ed went and had a few drinks after this. Once he was done and left the bar, he opens up his trunk to make sure she was dead, one, and also said he was admiring his catch like a fisherman. After this, Ed took her body back to his apartment and did the same things he did with the two previous victims. Another similarity with Aiko and Marianne and Anita is that their families actually sprung into action as soon as they disappeared. It was literally the same day, but sadly, it would be a while till they got answers. And then once they did, it was not good. Well, you you have to think about this. This is like these girls are missing. And this is just after the Manson murders and everything like that. Right. And, you know, it's kind of that time where kids would disappear in like the hippie movement. Mm hmm. So parents were probably, like, very sensitive to their kid, like, to children or college-age students disappearing. Right. I mean, the fear that there probably was, like, another man like Charlie Manson out there recruiting young girls probably had parents pretty, like, scared. Like, vigilant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's obviously a flaw that he didn't think about was that they would have people looking for them. Mm Mm-hmm. So the very next day after killing her, Ed had an appointment with his psychiatrist as a part of his parole. Her head was actually still in the trunk of his car when he went to the facility for his meeting. When he went there, he passed and was deemed sane by the psychiatrists. 
just imagine this is like a precipice moment for Ed Kemper. Like he has a dead girl's head in his trunk and he is sitting there talking to a professional who's literally helping him move along his way to becoming a regular citizen in the eyes of the law. And he's being deemed sane and he's sitting there. The like gratification he must have been feeling was probably very overwhelming. Oh, yeah. And then on top of that, on November 29th, his juvenile record was sealed. Right. So that just that's the frosting on the cake for him. I'm sure. I'm pretty sure that like they were looking for that recommendation that he was considered sane and that Mm -hmm. and that he didn't have some sort of psychological problem and that the murders of his grandparents were some sort of like childhood isolated incident where shit just got out of control. Right. Now, at this point, things were on the news about these bodies turning up. So, of course, Ed had to be calculated with who he chose to kill from here on out. In Ed logic, he said when picking up hitchhikers, of course, the conversation of who was doing this would come up. So if they speculated, oh, I bet the guy looks like such and such, or, you know, he said the ones who would have all these weird theories that basically weren't him, they got a free ride because he was, you know, good to go in the clear. Which is interesting. Is he saying that he killed someone who thought it was someone who looked like him? Who knows? I don't know. Because this leads me to believe that maybe he has other victims we don't know about. I hope not. I, I hope not, too. And But Head Kemper talks so much, you'd think at this point he would have, like, blurted it out. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, one other little creepy tidbit, and if you ever take a ride from somebody, don't let them do this. He said that, well, actually with doors, I don't know if you do this anymore, but whatever. Uh, he said he would reach over them to act like he was reshutting it, basically being like, oh, it, you know, it's janky. Like, it doesn't shut right. You got to slam it. And when he was doing so, he would drop a chapstick in with the handle so it would jam it. He did this as an extra thing in case he couldn't lock the doors fast enough. Got it. Yeah. So that's fun. I don't know how you could really do that now, but you know. No, because like the way all, I don't know how those handles worked, but like the handles now are like. But still, close your own doors. <laughs> <laughs> now you could just hit the, like the, I don't know. There's probably ways. Yeah, no. You could definitely easily break out of my car. My <laughs> husband is so, no, no. Like, okay, tip of the day moment, people. My husband is so afraid of me like careening off of a bridge which I've never almost ever in in any time swerved on a bridge, but he has this like fear of it. So he always is telling me, so I have (laughs) these things in my car and I got them on Amazon. It was like two for $9. Mm -hmm. And basically what they'll do is like, say you're like, there's a part where you can cut the seatbelt if you need to, but there's also like that, like window breaker on the end of it. Yeah. And so I don't know why he has this fear it's irrational and who knows, like <laughs> watch too many movies, but I have one on either side of my car in the front. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in my car and you needed to break out, you could. Yeah, there you go. I have those too in my cars. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at us. Yours actually makes sense, though, because like you live in Alaska where there's like a lot more ice and like you could actually like slip on something and crash and need to cut yourself out of a car or break a window versus like, where the fuck am I going? <laughs> you never know. You're always prepared. It's true. The Boy <laughs> Scout and my husband. Yes. Now we're going to jump ahead to January 8th of 1973. 
Around this time, Ed moved back in with his mom. So we know this is a recipe for more disaster. On this evening, Ed had purchased a 22 Ruger automatic pistol with a six-inch barrel. And he would also meet his next victim, Cynthia Ann Shawl, a.k.a. Cindy, who was also 18. Ed had been driving around the Cabrillo College campus when he picked her up. Again, he would end up in a remote wooded area where he would shoot her with the new weapon in the head. He then placed her body in the trunk of his car and drove back to his mother's house where he kept her body hidden in his bedroom closet overnight since she was home. When she left her work the next morning, he got his same MO. He had sex with her corpse. He removed the bullet from her temple and he would dismember and decapitate her in her bathtub. After this, Ed went to Oakland to visit a friend, but on his way there, he stopped at a laundromat near his old apartment in Alameda, and he had placed all of Cindy's clothing, which was like some blue socks, a checkered wool shirt, a blouse, and a nylon jacket, and amped it up to the highest setting and put in 40 cents worth, so four dimes worth. Basically, his thought was that the continued high heat with multiple cycles would burn the clothing beyond recognition and he'd be good to go. The next day, he went back to the laundromat and checked the dryer and the clothes were gone. He would also dump her body parts off a cliff along the coast. His thought was the other bodies were kind of local, so he wanted to do this in a different place so that way maybe the police wouldn't connect the murder victims. So they wouldn't realize they had a serial killer on his hands. So Ed always thinking. Just two days, though, after this and through the 22nd, authorities would find multiple pieces of Cindy's body, including her arms, hands and pelvis. A pathologist determined that Cindy had been cut into pieces with a power saw. Ed did keep Cindy's severed head for several days, engaging in the activities as he did with the others and ended up burying it in his mother's garden, facing upwards toward her bedroom. Later, when asked why did he do this, he said because his mother, quote, always wanted people to look up to her. So again, everything is mom-centric. Also at this time, because authorities are like really on the manhunt, Ed started to really play up this whole friendly nuisance thing at the jury room. He went there not only to get intel on getting away with things from the police, because uh, obviously at this point he's doing a pretty damn good job of it, sadly, but to see what kind of information they had and to see if he was a possible subject, because also he was getting a little paranoid. But of course, good old Big Ed was in the clear. Now, again, keeping up with our pattern, Ed gets into another huge fight with his mom. And this time for this particular instance, he says he goes out looking for his next kill but that he had to play it smart. So at this point, you know, not only the police, but the community, everybody is just like extra aware, extra cautious, you know, afraid because all of these girls are ending up dead. And the campus had put out from authorities, I'm assuming, advice not to hitchhike from anybody unless they have the university stickers on them because that would mean that they are related to the campus. So there's that false sense of security again. I just want to say like, How very presumptuous of them. Like, if it wasn't Ed Kemper, it could have been a professor. It could have been anyone. Exactly. I don't know if maybe also they thought if they slimmed it down this way, then it would help them slim down who to find as a suspect because they had nobody. But I'm just like, "Mm, would it though? Because it could be anybody who was there, worked there, went there, stole a sticker. Yeah, stole a sticker, anything, made a fake sticker. Right. 
stole a car with a sticker. Right. Mm-hmm. But of course, Ed would have a sticker because, like I said earlier, his mom worked at the university. So there you go, guys. There's that. So on this day, he encountered Rosalind Heather, who was 23, and Alice, quote, Allison, who was 20, over at the UCSC campus. So according to Kemper, Heather entered the car first, and Allison was kind of more apprehensive to enter, but then would eventually convince her, like, no, it's okay. Let's get a ride. You know, we got places to be kind of thing. And I'm sure you can guess they ended up in their secluded area yet again. Ed would shoot both of the girls with the same weapon that he killed Cindy with. The crazy thing with this one, though, is when he was leaving the area, there was a police checkpoint or police stop, basically, and they were checking everybody's cars and all of that. So what happens? Jesus Christ. Their bodies were not in the trunk this time. Their bodies were actually in the cab. Mm -hmm. So one girl was in the front seat and one girl was in the back. And at this point, it was said that... The one in the back seat was, like, about to die, like, still kind of alive, you know, and, like, making noises and stuff because, obviously, she's about to fucking die and in pain. But he had also wrapped them up in blankets. So when he gets pulled over, he says he has this whole demeanor about him of, I don't want to deal with this type of shit. You all are fascist pigs, quote, quote, all of that. And I'm, I'm guessing, again... His size comes into play. And then also the cop was probably like, I don't want any fucking trouble with someone this big because I don't it's not clear if there was just one cop or multiple cops type of situation. So essentially that bad attitude he puts on the cop just lets him go through without even searching his car or looking in or nothing. Did they verify this with the police or is this just a story Kimper told? Well, this was on the Kemper on Kemper documentary, Mm -hmm. and I believe the person that told us the story was one of the officers. Okay, because they had on. If you don't know this documentary, it's in our sources. They had multiple officers and also John Douglas. So that's where that story came from. Oh, okay, okay. Because I just wanted to say, like, I didn't know if this was like just a story. Maybe Ed Kemper like, made up to be like, look, I'm fucking badass. Like, the cops didn't... Yeah. Because, like, his relationship... Well, actually, I take that back because his relationship with the cops is pretty much what he says. He's mm-hmm. like, I actually, I think he downplays it. I think the cops actually liked him more than Kemper gave him credit for. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, even with these credible people saying this, it very well could be a Kemper story. It's, again, one of those things we don't know. But um, essentially, he's saying that he got through yet another traffic stop without shit happening. Again, after he left, he got both of his victims back to his mother's house. And this time, he beheaded them in his car and carried the corpses into the house. Again, had sex with them, dismembered the bodies, and removed the bullets to prevent any identification. And then the next morning would get rid of their remains. Some of the remains were found at Eden Canyon a week later, and then more were found near Highway 1 in March. When he was questioned in an interview, and y'all, it's in our sources, and you can just go to YouTube and type in Ed Kemper, and you will get hours and hours of footage of him telling all of this himself. But he's asked why he decapitated his victims, he explains, quote, the head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brain, the eyes, the mouth. That's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in the girl's body without the head. Gross. Yeah. 
that is the last co-ed killing. But now here comes kind of the the big ones. This is where Ed says he completely goes off the rails. And here we are because we are going to discuss Clarinelle's death now. Big, big fight. Big, huge fight sets Ed off about a week before the murder. He says that essentially during the fight, she had said, you're nothing. You'll never amount to anything. You're just like your father. And that was it. That was it for him. And he decided at this point, enough's enough. I've been killing these girls to take my rage out I have from her on them. It's time to take it out on you. He said he knew for about a good week or so before she was dead that that's what he was going to do. He knew. He was ready. So on April 20th of 1973, after coming home from a party, she came home and Ed Kemper was still awake. He said she was sitting in her bed just reading a book. And at this time he came in and, you know, didn't say anything. So she says, super, super asshole, smart ass. I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now and just kind of like kept jabbing at him about that. And Kemper replies, no, good night. He leaves the room. He then waits for her to fall asleep before returning to her room. He then bludgeons her with a claw hammer, slits her throat with a knife. After this, he decapitates her and does what he has done with these other severed heads. After this, he uses it as a dartboard. And Kemper stated that he put her head on a shelf and screamed at it for an hour. Basically, you know, getting out all these things he's probably always wanted to say to her. And ultimately, smashing her face in. And if that's not enough, he also cuts out her tongue and larynx and puts them in the garbage disposal. However, the garbage disposal couldn't break them down. The tissue's really tough when it comes to the vocal cords and kept shooting them back out of the sink. And he pretty much just said it seemed appropriate as much as she bitched and screamed at me over the years. It wasn't enough that she was dead. He wanted to take that voice she had, even though she was gone, and just like, I guess, overkill it and just really demolish it is what I get from that. But after all of that, Kemper hid his mom's corpse in a closet and then went out for a drink. Once he got back, he invited his mom's best friend, Sarah, aka Sally, over to the house to have dinner and watch a movie. When she arrived, Kemper immediately strangled her to death, essentially to help create a cover story that the two women had gone away on a vacation together. He then put her corpse in the closet as well and fixed any outward signs of a disturbance and left a note for the police, which read, approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a, quote, lack of time, things I gotta do, exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. And then after this, Ed would decide to leave town. He drove nonstop from California all the way to Pueblo, Colorado, taking caffeine pills to stay awake on his thousand-mile drive. He had three guns and hundreds of rounds of ammo in his car, and he thought at this point he would be the target of this big-ass manhunt. Well, no, he wouldn't because he'd get to Pueblo and nothing on the news. Everything was normal. Everything was fine. So nobody had even known that they were dead. So when he got there, he got to a phone booth and he called the police back home. He confessed to the murders of his mother and Sally, 
And when he was first calling, they thought that he was just messing with him and essentially kind of wasting their time. So they actually hung up on him. He called right back and he's like, no, I'm serious. I killed them. Go over there now. And he actually stayed on the phone with them until they got there. And along with this, he confessed that he was the co-ed killer. And he just starts word vomiting everything and all of these details that literally no one would know but him. And he would sit there and wait until the authorities from Pueblo, because of course, (laughs) California is a bit of a drive, the Pueblo PD showed up to arrest him and take him into custody. When asked later in an interview why he turned himself in, Kemper said, The original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it any longer. Toward the end there, I started to feel the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off. And that, my friends, is where we are going to stop here for part one. We will be back next week with a paranormal episode for you. And then the following Monday, Jessica will pick us up here and finish us up with part two. Yes. Yes, yes. But until then, we hope you guys have a fantastic rest of your day. And we will catch you in this week's Stabby Snippet. Have a good day, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.